0: So some of you know this, maybe many of you know this, I, I grew up, I was a native uh, Californian until about eight years ago when I came to my senses and I said, you know what, man, it's just too warm here. Um, <laughs> what I really dream of is going to a place where it, you know, dips below the, uh, the tens and the zeros. And uh, I, got, I got my dream and I'm, I'm living that out this week. <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's been great. Um, Man, but to, all to say, I, was, I, was, uh, I went back, back home, right? Everybody, what do you mean home? Is, that, is not, this not your home whenever you say that? But in some ways, it, it still feels like home because my, my, all my extended family's there. But I was able to go back this summer, uh, visit my mom. And I had a friend of mine, a guy, a pastor. I've talked about him in the past. His name's Kimani, and he's a Kenyan pastor that relocated to the U.S. And it had, just had a really big impact on my life, did some mentoring in my life. And uh, recently, he, uh, he planted a church that he called Rebuild. I love that name. He called it Rebuild Church. And uh, he knew I was going to be out there. And he said, hey, why don't you come and speak to our church plant? And I said, well, you know, what do you want me to say? I, you know, I don't, man, I don't know. What do you want me to say? And, and uh, he said, well, he goes, you know, we're, we're crazy enough to, to try to plant a multi-ethnic church. And so why don't you just come in and, and, and tell us what you think Jesus has to say to us? And you know so I'm like dude I'm like you know like you know like I moved to a town that's 98% Caucasian right and you're talking about multi-ethnic church I mean for those of you here who contribute to our ethnic diversity we love you please don't leave all right so that, that's my message before I continue on with this but um, as I was thinking about this not really knowing what to say but knowing but remembering that I did grow up in the town that he planted to rebuild in um, and kind of having grown up in, in a more multi-ethnic culture um, man, even even more than just uh, you know uh, having that kind of diversity, I started thinking about well, what what's something bigger that I can go after, and um, and, and so I, I started realizing that you know this place that that he has planted, rebuild, and this place that I, I grew up in is really more than anything else is a, is a broken culture, it's just a broken culture, and, and, and in that sense, it's really no different than, than the cultures that we have here uh, in Ashland and Worcester, so um, one of the questions I asked when I spoke to his church was, what does a broken culture need, and I, and I, wanted, to, uh, I wanted to bring this to you guys um, as I'm on the eve of leaving for a sabbatical, many of you know, uh, tomorrow, and uh, one of the things I thought about was, well, man, if this was my last message, and this is not, don't read into that, I'm not being all cryptic. But if this was my last message what would I what would I want to say and how would I want to encourage you and I I went back to some of the things that I was able to speak to his church about and I wanted to share some of these things with you which which is just what our title is today which is what a broken culture uh, needs. And first off, b- before we sort of dive into Ephesians 2, which is going to be sort of the undergirding and the foundation uh, of what I believe a culture needs broken people to be, to be effective in the culture, um, I, th- I think it's good to talk about what it means to be broken, right? We use the word brokenness a lot. We just kind of sang about it in, in our liturgy and through our songs. So and what, what does it mean to be broken? Melissa and I, man, we have this we were just chatting about this this morning. We have this tiny little space heater. It's like this big in this room in our house where we like to sit and we like to read in. And it's just this piece, this cheap piece of junk, plastic paid like $8 for it, space heater. And, and what's crazy is like in the last month, like we're turning it on and it's, and it's like going really slow now. And like the, the amount of heat it's pouring out. Is, you know, I don't, is it pouring out heat? And we, like, every day we're like, we're like, we're, I don't know, we're just, we're just talking about it all the time. And, you know, we, we don't want to uh, accept that it's not like working that well, even though we're like freezing and it's not warming our, our, our feet. So we, we end up just sort of getting closer to it and we pull it closer to our feet and we, you know, even we've had some arguments, hey, no, no, I'm not getting enough of that, right? So I'm pulling it over to me and I'm getting greedy with it because we're old and pathetic now. And, uh, you know, if I'm going to be honest, man, it's, uh, it's starting to get ugly, which is just which is why we need a sabbatical. It's the space heater. That's really what's drawing us to needing this break. But, um, but here's, here's, here's my point, is that the thing is broken, but we, we don't want to face it. We don't want to face the brokenness of this space heater in our lives that is meant to function as a way to give us some heat. Um, and really, it brings us back to our own sense of, of, of brokenness. The larger point is when we talk about brokenness, and we try to understand what it is. There's a tension with really understanding what it is, facing what it is, and believing what it is. And so when we talk about brokenness this morning, what we're really gonna be talking about is um, having a right understanding of who we are and who God is. And so when we talk about who we are, it's talking about having a knowledge of self, a knowledge of self, because here's our default, right? Our default is that we, we are, we're not that bad, Our default is just simply that we're really not that bad. And so brokenness means having a right understanding of who we are as well as who God is. So our knowledge of self is that we're not that bad. But our knowledge of God, on the other hand, is that he's not really that good. We're not that bad. He's not that good. And what happens is when we become a culture that becomes truly broken by the effectual grace of the gospel, it means that our knowledge of self comes to this really, really... Contentious almost understanding that we are that bad. But then on the flip side of that, our knowledge of God gets to this place where we understand and believe that He is that good. Okay? Because we live in a broken world and there's no getting around that. In 2017, oh my gosh. Have we ever had a clearer, I'm not getting all political on you right now, but have we ever had a, a clearer picture of the brokenness that exists in the world? Just click on social media for like two and a half minutes. It's a mess. We live in a broken world. But here's the other flip to that. We live in a broken world that actually needs to be broken. We live in a broken world that needs to be broken because they have not been broken of their brokenness. And so for us, as God's people who gather to be the most effective church that we can be in Ashland or the most effective congregation that we can be in Worcester, we, we need to be the most broken church in Ashland and in Worcester because a broken culture needs broken people to live out what we would say is an unbroken gospel. And what I think is that Ephesians 2, it actually defines this for us. It defines both of these things for us and it allows us to see the tension between the two, right? Our knowledge of self and our knowledge of God, having that correct knowledge. But it allows us to see the tension between the two that we must live in in order to live out a broken life so that Christ is actually seen as Savior to the benefit of ourselves and to the benefits of the culture and the community that God has placed us in. So let's just go straight to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read, I'm just going to have a sort of step through 10 verses this morning. This is not going to be a a, a deep uh, you know exposition of the passage as much as we're just going to kind of skim over it and pull some things out of it. Because by the way, at, at the end of the day, I don't, don't want to speak to you as a... As a scholar, not that I even have the gift or the talent to do that, but I don't want to speak to you as, 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 as this being something that's academic. I mean, I, I want to speak to you as a pastor this morning and how this impacts. And by the way, how I want this to impact Melissa and I as we head out tomorrow for the next couple of months. So this would be my prayer. One of our prayers uh, for us as we leave um, is that God would break us of some of the things in our life that are unbroken that need to be broken. So as we go through this, this is something that is very much a part of our prayer. So what does a broken culture then need to know? I have three, three things, three answers that I think we find here in Ephesians. And the first one is this, they need to know who they really are. They need to know who God really is, number two. And number three, they need to know what their future can really be. So let's look down at Ephesians chapter two. Here's what verses one through three tells us. So let's just stop right there. So what we see here when we talk about what a broken culture needs is that broken people, broken people like us, start with their own brokenness. And what we see here, Paul wrote this book to the Ephesian church, and we see here that Paul gets right into the mess. He gets right into the tension that we lived with, even as saved people. This is the tension we live in. We were dead. We once walked the course of a broken world. We once lived enslaved to broken passions, right? We were born as broken sons and daughters of wrath, of wrath. Like that's just not a word I use, generally speaking, in everyday conversation. But that's what Paul is trying to drive at here. We were just like all other broken people. When I was speaking to uh, my friend Kimani's church, I, I said, hey, you guys, why are you called Rebuild Church? because something has been broken that needs to be rebuilt. Like you didn't call the church built, right? There's something there that's broken that needs to rebuild, but you can only rebuild if you begin, according to Paul here, with your own brokenness. And you know what this does? You know what this does as citizens of this particular community that we live in? It allows you to meet people in their brokenness. Because here's the thing, what do you have to offer people otherwise? What do I have? What do you have to offer people otherwise? How can you even attempt to wade into some of the waters that we are are gathered here to wade into? How can you wade into the waters of spiritual, racial? We have those here. Socioeconomic reconciliation. We have those issues in our town. How can we even do that without the story of how Christ reconciled us, sinners? What else do we come armed with if we even begin to have broken hearts towards these things. I mean, what do we have? What, vacation Bible school? I mean, I'm not knocking that. I mean, what do we do? Like have neighborhood programs? I'm not knocking that. But that can't just be what we come with. It's not, it's not enough. Again, not a bad thing. Don't, don't hear me. Don't, send, don't start checking out the emails, you know. And, but, but, but they can't rebuild hearts. Those things can't rebuild hearts. A broken culture needs to know who they really are. But that requires God's people never forgetting who they were. That's what we get right here. And being broken, it it allows us to do something. If we become broken people, it allows us to reach into people's humanity. It allows you to live out the picture of restored humanity like Jesus did, looking at people differently like Jesus did, with compassion because they are sheep without a shepherd. Because at the end of the day, people need to know who they really are, right? And when you sit down with a cancer patient, Some of you are cancer patients, but when you sit down with a cancer patient, you don't give them two Tylenol and a Band-Aid, right? You are honest about their disease so that they can begin treatment, so that you can walk with them through their treatment. They need to know what's going on, just like we need to know what's really going on inside of our hearts. Tim Keller says, if you have a small view of your sin, God's grace will be small to you, is what he says. And, you know, the story of Jesus uh, and the woman at the well in John chapter 4, some of us are familiar with that story, but it's kind of a, a case study for us in this. This was a, a Samaritan woman uh, that Jesus comes in contact with in his travels. And, again, this, is a, this, was a, this was a particular community that was hated. It was despised, a lot of prejudiced. Uh, they were avoided by the Jews. It was not a people that the Jews liked to come in contact with because they were polluted. They were sinful. They were considered unclean. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus approaches this ethically and morally impure woman. And he has a drink of water with her. He asks her for a drink of water. But we see something in Jesus. In his exchange with her, we see that he's kind. We see that he's gentle. We see that he listens to her. In fact, he might be the first man who didn't look at her with lust in his eyes. Or with the intent to use or abuse her. He returns her humanity, actually, back to her. By by how? By what? Well, by exposing her sin, right? He doesn't doesn't just, you know, he just just doesn't take a drink of water and chat about water, right? But he exposes her sin and brokenness so that she would know the hope to which he was calling her to, which happened to be himself, right? In the same way, a broken culture needs to know who they really are so that they can secondly know who God is really is and this is where we come up to the tension between knowledge of self and knowledge of God and how we are to live our life in the tension of these two things so look down chapter two when we get to verse four we come to these really two important words after finding out who we are and 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 what our fate is without God right we get to verse four and it says but God and there is where the tension begins this is who we are but God and it says being rich in mercy the Ephesians, after he reminds them of their brokenness. Where does he take them? Well, he takes them to a person. He takes them to God. So in our efforts to rebuild or to think about even the idea, like my friend Kimani is, of rebuilding a culture and gathering all these people together to form this particular movement, um, man, you know what can happen when we do that? What happens is we can become what we're not setting out to be, what God hasn't called us to be. We can become massagers, We can become managers rather than messengers that have something that is life-changing because it invades the heart and does the work of Christ in the heart that needs to happen. We can forget that the greatest message we have to offer broken people is God, is but God, a God who didn't just lend us a helping hand in our brokenness. Don't think of it so cheaply. Don't think of you as having anything to do with that. Because if you did, why are we singing the songs that we sing? Grace alone, come ye sinners, in Christ alone, all of these things. This is, what the, this is what these songs are constantly driving us back to, is that God didn't lend us a helping hand in our brokenness. He didn't throw out a life raft because we were getting ready to drown in the sea. He didn't toss us a rope as we were dangling over a cliff, right? He literally resurrected dead hasty people from the grave by making us alive together with Christ because of his great love and mercy. Anybody have a baby out there? Anybody, has anybody had a baby or ever had a baby or taken care of a baby? That's everyone in here. I just covered it. Zach's raising his hand. I don't know why. Dude only has like five kids and like five on the way right now. Um, but anybody that has ever taken care of a baby knows that babies have a problem with choking on things. I think I've talked about this before. It's inevitable because the only thing babies know how to do is eat everything they get their hands on, right? Like animals, by the way, if we're being honest. Now, when a baby starts to choke on something, um, none of you all just stands there and goes, buddy, give me a minute to finish my coffee. Um, I got to scroll through Facebook. And if you haven't dislodged that thing from your throat, I'll see if I can lend you a hand. Like, like nobody does it. You literally drop everything and you maniacally try to remove whatever it is that's making them choke. Because why? Because they have no power to do it themselves. They're babies. And if you didn't, it would say something about your character. So when we come down here to, to verse 4 here in chapter 2, we get this, but God. And that's the movement of God in our lives. Just like he did with his own son who laid dead in the tomb, he went ahead and accomplished a distinct and total reversal of the death process in the life of everybody that calls themselves a Christian. This is the message that broken people need to know so that they can know who God really is. Because here's what's frightening for us, all right? We will bring a God to Ashland. You can't do anything without bringing a God to the situation that God has actually placed you in. Which God are you bringing to all the different facets of situations that God has put in your life? Which God will you bring to your culture? Which God will you bring to your home? Which God you bring to yourself? Broken people who know who they really are bring a God who actually rejects our good deeds as grounds For hope. Broken people introduce a broken culture to grace. That's what Paul is saying here. Man, we we struggle with that. I struggle with grace every day. It's a struggle to understand that God is not bummed out with me all the time. I told Melissa this morning, and you know, we've been talking about this a lot. Here's something I want to pray about when we go away. Here's here's another thing. We got a list of like 597 things. But one of the things I said to her this morning was, I said, I just, I, I, I default into feeling like God isn't that pumped with me all the time. I just don't feel like he's that stoked. I feel like he's tired of me and my groaning and my complaining and asking for all the stuff I want that I feel like he doesn't want to give me because it's not the right stuff. You know, and it's just the list goes on and on. It's because I'm not understanding grace. I'm not grasping it. It's a foreign concept to me. It's not understanding that grace is God saying, hey, given what you did, brother, which was, you know, all that stuff, you broke my law, you rebelled against me, giving all of that, I'm going to go ahead and I'm just going to give you the greatest gift ever given to anybody for all eternity. I'm going to give you Jesus. I'm going to give you my son. And the life that I've given my son will be gifted to you. I've used this illustration before, so um, sorry if you've heard this. You need to hear it again anyway. But... Um, This is the best thing I got, Um, and it's kind of like this when we think of grace. Picture yourself committing a crime. You broke into a millionaire's house. You know, let's just up it. It's a billionaire's house. How about that? Um, You open the safe behind the portrait, right, because that's how billionaires, you know, keep their money, Um, and you've stolen a billion dollars, right? He had it all in, you know, 20s and 50s. Um, The alarm goes off. The police comes, hauls you off to jail. You're caught red-handed. But something happens when you get to jail. Something changes inside when you get locked up. You realize what you did was wrong. You realize the severity of your crime and you, you have a, a measure of remorse. So when you go to court, you, uh, you plead guilty before the judge and the jury. And the judge decides, um, for reasons unknown, to have mercy on you. He says, look, man, even though you deserve to go to prison to pay for your crime, I'm, I'm gonna withhold my judgment on you. And you say, awesome. I, yeah, I don't know what to say. And then something crazier happens. The man that you stole the money from comes to you and says, hey, I want you to know that I forgive you for the money you stole. And the reason why the judge pardoned you is because I'm the one who said he would serve your sentence in place of you. I'm going to serve the sentence that you deserve. And then he says, by the way, the judge, he's my dad. And because I'm serving your sentence, he decided to give you an equal share of his entire estate, so I just want you to take it because it's yours. And everything I enjoy, you get to enjoy. But what a ridiculous but mind-boggling story, really. And what I like about it is it, is it is it kind of brings us to this practical way of understanding what God did that he didn't have to do. It, it helps us understand grace. So my question is, do you live in the tension of, of that criminal who was pardoned, because because you are that criminal that was pardoned, and again, that's the greatest piece of news that you as a broken person and other broken people like us need for rebuilding. By grace, you have been saved, it says. By grace, you have been raised up, and by grace, you have already have a seat with Jesus points to the future hope that's been secured by him. So like when I get all bummed because I think God's not pumped with me, well, he's not pumped with my sin, but when he sees me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. So he's, he's rather stoked out of his mind when he sees me. That's the real truth. And can we get ourselves familiar with that? Can we get ourselves familiar with God's grace so that it bleeds from our hearts and leaves this undeniable and messy stain on everyone that we come in contact with? Can we do that? If you don't see grace, if you never see grace, man, you got to find out if you've even been saved by it. You should probably probably explore that. And if you have been saved by grace, man, start understanding the tension and some of the ways you're living that, that may indicate that, man, you haven't really understood it. And maybe one of the ways to start understanding it is to start sharing it with others so that it becomes this sort of glowing ember that's being stoked and fanned in your life. Man, don't, don't leave grace as a conceptual, religious word that you hear dudes like me going on and on about uh, every week. Let, let's live out the riches of grace that, that can be best known by knowing God. So broken culture, they need to know who they really are. They need to know who God really is. And thirdly, finally, they need to know what their future is can really be. Do you ever wonder why God saved a bunch of people who rebelled against him, a bunch of people who hated him and eventually betrayed and killed his son? I mean, those are the people that like, my parents told me to stay away from in school, right? Why did, why did God do that? Here we have verse 7. Look what it says. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Maybe you guys have visited uh, an art museum. What happens when you visit an art museum? Like if you go to the Cleveland Museum of Art, is you go into a room where all these paintings are displayed and there's an angry-looking man or woman standing nearby to make sure that you don't give in to the temptation that we all have to reach out and just touch the paintings, right? We go into an art gallery and we're all like four years old again somehow. Um, but you need to act like a grown-up. You need to view the art, right? And, and you know, it's not, not a lot of high-energy entertainment going on there, let's be honest. But what you're seeing when you go into an art gallery is a renowned artist's life work. You're beholding the greatness Of their craft. It's on full display to admire, to appreciate, and to be inspired by. So, this is what God does like that. He assembles a collection of sinners, He saves them, He calls them the church. And by doing it, His grace and kindness, it's on vivid display to the world. So, the church, you guys, you're a portrait of God's grace that He's painting on the canvas of the cross. That's what all of this is. That is the present that leads into the future. And this is how I like to think of it. Man, I, I like to listen to uh, to old records and tapes. I just have a thing for that. Um, my problem, one of my problems, is I've never had this amazing sound system. I've never invested in an amazing sound system to play my old records, and and they they never sound that great. You know, I kind of like that, but they really, truthfully, they don't sound that great. They sound kind of crackly and noisy and hissy. But here's the thing: the songs are still great songs. Like the songs still come through. Some of you guys are gonna disagree with what I'm about to say, but when I put on Carpenter's Christmas the day after Thanksgiving this year, don't say anything, don't hate about that, but when I put on Carpenter's Christmas, one of the best Christmas records ever recorded after Thanksgiving, the songs, I mean, love it or hate it, the songs come through. Not because my record is record player or my system is great, but because the songs being played on it are. God saved us so that his song of grace and kindness could be seen and heard in us, crackly, broken, noisy, distorted people, right? But the problem is that we live in a world that's suspicious. And some of that suspicion, man, it lingers in our lives. We're suspicious. When someone shows kindness, man, we, we doubt their motives, don't we? We wonder what's behind it. We wonder what their end game is, what they will get out of it. It's hard for us to imagine somebody doing something for nothing. Well, here's a question Did God do something for nothing on the cross? Of course not. He didn't. Everything God does is for God's glory. That's his reason, that's his end game. And when people live in the light of God being greater than all other things, we experience this thing called joy we experience this present and future reality called joy, which is God's grace and kindness invading our hearts, changing us, shaping us more deeply into who his son is. God saved us for his sake so that his glory could be known to a world that, man, is just drowning and covered and immersed in darkness. Because here's where he wants the bent of our hearts and the flow of our mouths. This is what he wants it to be when we go to Psalm 145, six through eight. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the words of a broken person right there. And we're not just living a life anymore. We're living a Christian life. We're seeing who God is, what he's doing all around us, everything he's accomplishing, how he's making things new, how he's convicting people, how he's forgiving people, growing people, sanctifying people, building a people who can influence a community with the gospel. And again, more important than seeing simply who God is, are, are we being who he is? A pastor, friend of mine, he's preached here a couple times, a guy named Donovan Santa Maria. He said a, a lady at Walmart asked him, Hey, where's, where's your church? And his reply was, All over town. All over town. Now, granted, Donovan can be a little snarky, and I would have probably smacked him if he would have ever given me that answer. But his answer was no less true. The church was never intended to be contained or confined to a building. And this is just bricks, right? We love our bricks, but it's just bricks. Um, it's the same with uh, my friend Kimani's church, Rebuild Church, that meets in a in a middle school, a diverse, multi ethnic. That's us too. Group of people who have peace with God, not just peace with God, but peace with one another. That's the future that broken people have for broken people. This is your future. How else do men and women see Jesus by the church? How do men and women accomplish the work of Jesus as the church? How do men and women worship Jesus as the church? How do men and women become the church? By Jesus. It's all right there. It's all in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. That's why we don't want to reduce the church to a building. That's why we don't want to reduce the church, the citizens of the saints, the members of God's household, the holy temple in the Lord, to something consumer, to something comfortable, to something self-conscious. We don't want it to become an accessory, right? We don't want it to cheapen the value of something that cost the great price that it cost Jesus to purchase. And yet, this is the view many of us have. that church is a, it's a, it's a consumer. It's a consumer entity in my life. The church is a building. It's a greeting place. It's a social gathering. It's a cafe. It's a comfortable space. Well, you know. It's a style of music, it's a type of preaching, it's an association, it's a place of pride, it's an expectation I have to feed my soul, train my kids, fit my lifestyle, alleviate my guilt, shape my identity, and find my unique space in the community. A lot of those things are awesome and they actually happen. But if that's all it is, you can see what we've done, you can see that we've reduced the church into everything but what it is, which First Peter describes as a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people For God's own possessions that we may do what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of what? Darkness. I was in darkness all of my life. We just sang. We sang grace alone. Called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So as people, as broken people who are reaching into a broken culture with an unbroken gospel, we don't want to strip the gospel of its gospeliness, of its good news, because we've been called out of darkness. We've been called into the marvelous light of God. You know, some of us still live as strangers and aliens to the church, don't we? I, I mean, in some ways, right? Kind of like we're estranged from the family, right? Some of us just, man, it's hard for us to get a little too close. We're resistant. We don't see church as, as family, as, as being a member of something that we can grow with, that we can contribute to, that we can, we can make stronger Some of us have a warped view of what all of this is, right? But this is how Jesus formed the church. Jesus killed the hostility between two diverse people groups to form one new people of of his own. So if if you're a Christian, if you're here and you're a Christian, man, this this is your people. This is your people. Whether you want to receive that, whether you want to accept that or not, this is your people, So let me just finish with a couple of things here um, because I don't want to leave uh, laying a bunch of burdens on you because what Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 tells us is that God has relieved us of the burden. God has relieved us from saying, man, I got to do something now to amount to the goodness that he's called me into. I mean, that's the opposite of this Reading and, and I feel like, man, it's substance over the last five years. Man, we've we've preached just wholeheartedly against that that just kind of like burdening lie, right? I, I hope that we've we've done that. I hope we do it better as we go uh, into the future because what we have here, what, what we have when I when I look out onto our congregations, what I see is that God has repaired something, right? He has repaired the disjointedness that exists between us. And it goes beyond us, right? It goes into the nations, to people groups, to communities, to neighbors, right? He's repaired the disjointedness. He, he in fact, is rebuilding something here every day, every Sunday, every time we gather together our community groups, all the days in between when we don't see each other, God is rebuilding something. He is calling us to a deeper sense of of brokenness so that we can see the deeper effect of his grace because of Jesus and the cross. That's why a broken people is the only kind of people to reach a broken culture because we have something unbroken. Finally, in our lives, we have something unbroken. We have the gospel. We are joined together because we have joint access to blood to blood that has jointly cleansed us god has established us to be this we are being his rebuilt church we are being his substance church and you know what? when this is your future if this is your future you know what it allows you to do man it just just takes some of those burdens off of your back now you know what it means it means that you can be generous you don't have to be so miserly anymore It means that you can show kindness without receiving anything in return. It means that you can take risks. Not foolish risks, but you can take risks. It means that you can extend peace, even if it's not being extended back to you. It means that you can care for others without fear of discomfort. Because this is not where we find our comfort. Because Christ became broken to give you all You can become a broken person now who has all to give. This is what a broken culture needs. This is what I want to be. This is what I want us to be. These are some spaces that, man, I'm gonna be praying about over the next couple of months that I want us to move into. I want God to do a work in my heart. Man, I want him to change my heart. I want him to break me down because I'm struggling with things. Because there's some areas in my heart that are hard i need god to break those things down why because i'm not broken enough either are you can we pray that god would break us see the problem why things don't happen the way god has designed them to happen is because he's still dealing with people like us that are existing between that tension right of our sin and what God has done to save us from our sin. But in reality, we're not really existing in the tension because that's a good place to be. It's a good place to be in the but God. That's where we wanna be. We wanna acknowledge our sin so that we can acknowledge how great God's grace was in delivering us from it so that we have something to offer as humble people. But the problem is we're not existing in the tension of that space. So I'm inviting all of you with me to step into the tension Ephesians 2 1 through 3 and that little crack between verses 3 and 4 that's the tension that's the space that we need to live in this is what a broken culture needs let's pray God we thank you for these great words of truth and life and grace and mercy as we look down At Ephesians 2, we pray that they would deeply impact us, they would deeply affect us, they would call us to being broken people that come before you, that gain a deeper love and affection for all that you did, being rich in mercy. The fact that you have raised us up, that you've seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. God, we pray that these things would be evident in our lives and as a church and that you would do work to continue to change us as we live in this tension. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.